You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC 273, Volkanovski versus the Korean Zombie, preview, predictions, and analysis. Two championship fights, including one highly anticipated rematch top the bill, along with a highly anticipated, some would call it the people's main event in the welterweight division between an undefeated rising prospect going up against a tested title contender. And like I said, in what many people would believe is the people's main event. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right. How's everybody doing today? And I'm glad that I'm getting these predictions out a little bit earlier. Um, I know that these fights are not this upcoming Saturday, which would be tomorrow, but it is going to be a week from tomorrow on April 9th. And I'm super excited for the card, and I know a lot of other people are as well. I was originally planning on breaking down four fights on the card. I know you're going to say four. You usually break down, you know, six or seven. And, you know, that's right. Normally, I break down more fights, but the main event, the co-main event, and the people's main event, like I mentioned in the intro, are so highly anticipated and so, I mean, I wouldn't say closely contested, but they're definitely good fights that I think it's better to spend more time going deeper on those analysis than it is to break down some of the fights on the undercard or, you know, lower on the main card. Originally, I was looking to break down a fourth fight, which was, um, I believe it was moved to the opener of the main card, but then it got canceled today because Kelvin Gastelum had to pull out due to an injury. It was originally set to be Kelvin Gastelum versus Nazardine Imovov. Imovov couldn't get a visa. Gastelum, obviously, you know, was going to try to stay on the card and get an opponent. Then Anthony Hernandez was supposed to take on Dreykus Duplessis, still knocks in the on the prelims. Anthony Hernandez actually is staying on the card, going up against a highly touted MMA prospect and a professional mixed martial artist out of Factory X with under coach Mark Montoya in Josh Fremd, who, um, you know, Mark Montoya actually talked about him in an interview I did on my podcast a little bit ago. So if you go back and look at the Mark Montoya interview I have on the podcast, you can go on and uh, hear a little bit more about Josh Fremd, who makes his UFC debut against Anthony Hernandez. But it was supposed to be Duplessis versus Hernandez. They pulled Duplessis to fight Kelvin Gastelum, which was going to be the number 10 versus the number 11 ranked fighter in that division. I believe that's actually a mistake because I don't think Duplessis is currently ranked in that middleweight division. But Gastelum, obviously, tough tested former title challenger fought the best of the best in the middleweight division. Um, he was going to step in, but Gastelum is actually injured. So they pulled him from the fight and Duplessis is not going to remain on the card. So unfortunately that was going to be the first fight I broke down on this podcast, but that can no longer happen because obviously the fight fell apart. The, it was just announced a few short hours ago that Gastelum had gotten injured. So we went from Gastelum versus Imovov and Duplessis versus Hernandez to Duplessis versus Gastelum to nothing. So unfortunate news, and it's not an April Fool's joke, just in case anybody was wondering, but you know, it is, it is what it is. And that's the game of MMA. That's the game we play. So, you know, we're going to stick with three fights, obviously the people's main event between the number two ranked welterweight in the UFC and former title challenger Gilbert Burns and the number 11 ranked undefeated, um, highly contested, you know, highly praised UFC. I wouldn't even call him a prospect, but you know, it's like the new Conor McGregor style energy. You know, I would say Patty Pimblett and Hamzat Shemaev have that, you know, Conor McGregor style energy, but Hamzat is just a different breed. 
And um, he's going up against the number two ranked, like I said, former title challenger in Gilbert Burns. So that is the people's main event. And then obviously the co-main event of the evening for the Bantamweight Championship, you have the champion, um, quote-unquote champion, Eljamain the Funkmaster Sterling going up against the interim Bantamweight Champion in Pelter No Mercy Yan. And then obviously the main event, um, a fight that I think a lot of people are underlooking and undervaluing as a main event and kind of just throwing Korean Zombie under the rug. Now, I can understand it from a technical standpoint. I can understand it from a, a momentum standpoint. But Korean Zombie is dangerous. The Korean Zombie Chan Sung Jung is a dangerous contender. And I do think that he will offer some scares to Volkanovsky in their fight. But we'll get to that breakdown when, obviously, we get to the main event. But... You know, great card, great triple header. That's what I call it. I mean, this is a triple header. And there are other good fights on the card, like Tisha Torres versus Mackenzie Dern. That's a good fight. I didn't study that fight, but if I had to lean early, I would probably lean on Tisha Torres. If it goes to a decision, I would probably go Torres based off her volume striking, her taekwondo and karate style, and her kicking game to kind of outpoint Mackenzie Dern over 15 minutes. Um, if it goes to the ground and gets into the grappling, I would pick Mackenzie Dern to win by submission. But early lean or a lean I would take because I'm not going to break down that fight. I would probably lean with Tisha Torres to win that fight by decision. But don't obviously don't take my word for it because I didn't do predict, uh, any tape study. I didn't do any film study, so I don't have a breakdown on that fight. And before we get into this, I would like to just make fun of myself for a minute because my last predictions for Kyle Dawkins, or I'm sorry, can't even say the name right. Chris Dawkins versus Curtis Blades. The last card we did predictions for, I completely shit the bed. I was like one in five, probably the worst I've ever done in terms of predictions for a fight card. And, um, you know, I've been on a streak recently, probably in the last two, three months. I've been going five and oh, six and oh, six and one, seven and one, seven and oh. Like I'm only missing one. Sometimes two, but it's usually I'm either getting them all right or I'm missing one. So we were on a streak, but that streak came to a crashing halt last weekend with, um, you know, just terrible predictions. I picked Dawkins to beat Blades by knockout, and Blades gets a knockout over Chris Dawkins. So that that could just go to show you, you know. And then I pick Askar Askarov, and he loses to Kaikar France, which I'm not mad at because I love Kaikar France. I'm so happy he's going to get a title shot. He might skip over Moreno, which that's fine because we don't need that fourth fight to begin with. I don't need to see four fights, four of the same fights in a row in the same division. That's what kills a division. I know they're close. I know they're great fights, but we don't need to see that. So I would throw um, Asker, or I'm sorry, I would throw Kaikar France in against Figueiredo as the next fight in June or July. And then I would throw Moreno either in a fight, a rematch with Askarov, or I would honestly make a rematch between um, Brandon Moreno and Brandon Royval because that fight ended due to a controversial shoulder injury. Um, Royval is coming off of a win, I believe. Uh, let's check that out. Actually, I believe he's coming off a win. I just want to check that out. Let's see. Yeah, so he beat Rogerio Bontanin via decision. And then prior to that, he lost to Alexandre Pantoja via second round submission, but he was piecing him up on the feet, landing heavy shots, hurting him over and over again. And then obviously Royval got hurt, got caught in a scramble and got submitted. But Royval looked good in that fight against Pantoja. So I think rebooking Royval in Moreno too is a great fight. I think Oskarov can stay on the sidelines and potentially fight the winner of Kai Car France and Davison Figueiredo. And then that's kind of how you work it out and you get some fresh matchups 
at least fresher than four fights, four of the same fight in a row. So that's honestly what I would do if it was up to me. But yeah, picks for that card were dog ass ugly. I mean, oh my god, I, I mean, <laughs> it was just a bad night for me. Probably the worst night, like I said, in the podcast history. I mean, I would have to go back and you know listen to some early fights because I did have some stinkers, some some stinkers. You know, like two and four, three and four. You know that did happen, but. Lately, we had been on a roll, but that roll came to a screeching halt. But we're looking to pick that back up with this card with UFC 273. And um, we're going to start it off with the people's main event. Um, And I call it that because I feel like this is the most anticipated fight on the card. Not because of how competitive people think it's going to be. Not because of how uncompetitive people think it's going to be. It's because of how many questions we have yet to get answered that are going to get answered in emphatic fashion one way or another, whether it's success or failure, Gilbert Burns, Burns versus Hamzat Chemaev is going to answer any questions we have about the game of the undefeated Chemaev. Any questions we have, they're going to get answered next Saturday night. So I'm excited and I can't wait to break it down. But obviously going into the fight, you have the number two ranked Gilbert Dorino Burns coming into this fight with a record of 20 victories and four defeats. He is coming off of a win over Steven Wonderboy Thompson via decision that was at UFC 264 in the Colmate event to Poirier versus McGregor three. And then he's going up against the number 11 ranked Hamzat Borz Chimaev, who comes into this fight with an undefeated professional record coming off of a first-round submission win at UFC 267 against the leech Li Jingliang at 10 victories and no defeats. So Chimaev versus Burns, um, fantastic fight. I mean, just looking at the rankings, you got number two versus number 11. Um, I believe Chimaev has had five fights in the UFC. Let me just check that before I say this unbelievable stat is it four you know what i think it's four fights so give me a second uh one two three okay so it's not listed here oh here we go okay i'm just dumb i didn't hit the down arrow so one two, three, four fights in the UFC. So four and zero in the UFC, um, only absorbed one strike in four fights in his UFC career. That is unheard of. Now I know you're going to look at the, the, obviously the quality of opponents, you know, Reese McGee, and then, you know, Gerald Mearshart and John Phillips, John Phillips and Reese McGee. Okay. You know, fair, fair to you. Fair point. But you know, Gerald Mearshart, after he lost to Chimaev, I believe he's on a two or three fight win streak. And, you know, coming off of finishing wins, I believe, all by submission. And Chimaev knocked him out with one punch. The first punch he threw in the first round, a mix between a straight right and a right hook. Boom! Caught him on the chin, dropped him. One punch knockout. 17 seconds in the first round. Then goes in against Li Jingliang, who was coming off of a knockout victory over Santiago Ponzinibbio. And he takes him down, picks him up in a clinch after he shoots a double, transitions to the back, picks him up, walks over to the corner with Dana White, talks to Dana White, throws him down, you know, locks in a um, half guard from that referee's position. I mean, not a half guard, but he rides him in that referee's position, you know, flattens him out, um, punches him a little bit, ties up the wrist with the Dagestani handcuff, is just constantly controlling, trying to land some ground and pound as he's tying up the opposite wrist. And, you know, wrist control, just landing the ground and pound, takes his back, lands some, you know, heavy shots, 
tries to go for Renek choke, doesn't work. Tries to switch up the grip, doesn't work. Switches it up one more time, locks it in, and the leech goes to sleep in the first round. Three minutes and 16 seconds for Hamzat Chemaev, a submission at UFC 267. 316, give me a hell, yeah. Just a quick shout out to uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, but that's a big win. That's an impressive win for Chemaev. But Gilbert Burns is a different animal. This is, it's it's one of the toughest fights in terms of welterweight contenders that he can have. And it's also one of the easiest fights, which that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when I break it down, you're going to understand what I mean by that. And then he was going to fight Leon Edwards. That fight was booked, I want to say, three times. Um, I believe the first booking was in December. Then it was going to be on January 20th. And just everything fell apart. Um, you know, Hamza got COVID twice, I believe. Um, retired from the sport from it because of the long-lasting lingering effects. Almost died from COVID-19. Had a terrible case from it, which makes his return at 267 and the performance he put on just absolutely unbelievable. And I think that the COVID case and the recovery and how bad that was on his body, I think that that is um, kind of skipping a lot of people's minds because of how much hype Shamayev has going into this fight against Burns. And then um, I I hope one day we get to see Shamayev and Leon Edwards because I wanted to see that fight so bad. It, it was at the time, it was unheard of that they would book that fight with a guy who only had two or three fights in the UFC. But we never got it never got to happen. You know, it was uh, <laughs> the new era version of Habib and Tony Ferguson in a way. But hopefully one day we do get to see that fight come to fruition and we get to see what would have happened if Shamayev and Edwards locked it up in the cage, but uh, Gilbert Burns, like we said, he was coming off of that title, um, you know, not title losing effort, but he went to fight Usman for the welterweight championship at UFC 258, heard him early in the first round with an overhand right over his jab and orthodox, um, caught him with a left high kick, caught him with a one-two high kick, you know, caught him with a a kick to the body followed by a right hand, a right hook. He was piecing him up in the first round, but the jab of Kamaru Usman and then switching to southpaw, popping him with the jab. The jab was the complete story of the fight, landing the one-two. Burns tried to counter, boom, pull, boom, counter with the right hand um, and just obviously came up short in that fight with a third-round TKO loss. But then came back, like we said, against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I picked against Burns in that fight. I had Wonderboy winning. That's obviously my bad. Um, predictions were good on that night, but obviously, you know, Wonderboy shit the bed for me. And then he goes in against Bilal Muhammad and loses that fight as well. So, you know, it sucks. I'm I'm really upset with how Wonderboy's been performing lately. I really do like Wonderboy. I wanted him to have some more success. He does have a win over Jeff Neal. He does have a win over Vicente Luque, but, you know, he lost to two dominant grapplers in Burns and then most recently Bilal Muhammad. But, you know, Burns looked good in that fight. Um, on the feet, he looked okay, but it was more the grappling. Um, timing the entries of Wonderboy, shooting from across the cage with a low ankle pick style, a single single leg, then transitioning to a double leg, working from the body lock, working the inside and outside trips up against the cage, pushing Wonderboy to the cage, getting the takedown, tying him up, and roughing him up with ground and pound and just controlling him in the grappling from start to finish. Um when it stayed on the feet for a little bit longer, Burns didn't really land anything significant on the feet. It was more of a grappling and jujitsu fest for Burns, but he did what he had to do to get the win. So Burns versus Chimaev, it's interesting. There's a lot of questions. This is probably my most look forward to fight on the card aside from the co-main event. But 
you know, I can understand if this is people's most look forward to fight on the card in general because it's a great fight. And like I said, it's going to answer a lot of questions. We're going to break down the stats really quick before I get into the technical analysis. Um, like I said, you got 20 and 4 for Gilbert Darino Burns and 10 and 0 undefeated for Hamzat Chemaev. Both men coming off of a win. When it comes to the height, Gilbert Burns is 5'10. Chemayev is six foot two. So a four-inch height advantage for Hamzat Chemayev. He is going to be the much bigger, longer, taller fighter in this fight. And I do think that that is going to play a big factor in this fight as well. When you look at the reach, it's a 71-inch reach for Gilbert Dorino Burns to a 75-inch reach for Chemayev. So a four-inch reach advantage and a four-inch height advantage for Hamzat Borz Chimaev. You look at the leg reach, it's identical at 40 inches. When you look at breaking down the win percentages for both men, 30% of the wins coming by way of knockout for Burns, 40% by submission, and 30% via decision. Pretty, you know, even all around the board. For Chemayev, 67% of his wins coming by way of KO, 33% by submission, and 0% by decision. So 10-0 all finishes. And, um, you know, I think... I don't want to. I don't want to say anything yet, but we'll see. Average fight time for both men. There's a big discrepancy here. 11 minutes and 28 seconds for Gilbert Burns to three minutes and 14 seconds for Hamza Chemaev. You look at knockdown average per 15 minute fight: 0.31 for Gilbert Burns to 1.16 for Hamza Borz Chemaev, scoring at least one knockdown in every one of his professional fights. Now, when you go to break down the significant strikes and just striking in general, strikes landed per minute, you got 3.12 for Gilbert Dorino Burns to 8.68 for Hamza Chemaev. You have significant strike percentages, 46% significant strike accuracy for Gilbert Burns compared to 77% significant strike accuracy for Chemaev. And then strikes absorbed per minute, 2.9 for Gilbert Burns to 0.08. For Chimaev. Like we said, four UFC fights, one strike absorbed in all four fights. Um, defense overall 55% for Gilbert Burns to 75% for Hamzat Chimaev. Uh, grappling, uh, this is where it gets a little interesting. 2.16 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Gilbert Burns. 4.65 for Hamzat Borz Chimaev. You look at the takedown accuracy, 36% takedown accuracy for Gilbert Burns to 66% takedown accuracy for Hamzat Chemaev. Give me one second. I just got to pull something up really quick. That is my fault. Hold on. Gilbert Burns. Pull it up on here. Sorry. Give me one second. All right. I just wanted to pull this up for when we get to that part of the breakdown. So... Going back to the stats, uh, submission average per 15-minute fight, 0.62 for Burns to 5.81 for Chemayev. So there's the breakdown for striking. There's the breakdown for grappling. But this is why this fight is so interesting. Chemayev hasn't been tested at all in his UFC career. Took down John Phillips, locked up a darts choke, submitted him right away. Took down Reese McGee, pounded him out with the ground and pound first round right away. Fought Gerald Mearshart, goes to the center of the cage, throws a front a hybrid between, I would say, a teep kick and a side kick. It was more of a side kick to the body. And then he circles him into the cage, fakes and faints. Boom, right hand, a mix between a straight and a hook. He threw it like a straight, but right at the last minute, uh, turned it 
torqued it and threw it like a hook, one punch KO 17 seconds in. <gasps> Excuse me. And then, like we said, against Li Jingliang, comes in, gets the takedown, picks him up, takes him over to Dana White, takes him down, ties up his legs um, in like a half guard position from the referee's position, ties up the wrist with the Dagestani handcuff, lands brutal ground and pound, t- breaks down his posture, ground and pound, breaks his posture, ground and pound, takes the back, flattens him out, ground and pound, ground and pound, ground and pound, looks like he's going to get the TKO, you know, locks up the rear naked choke, he switches the grip, switches the grip again, and and uh, Li Jingliang goes to sleep, passes out before he can even tap. And, you know, that's it. There, there really hasn't been any tests for Chimaev in his UFC career. And that's crazy. You know, you look at other fights in his career aside from the UFC. We'll pull that up. Uh, give me one second. I should have had that up when I pulled up the Gilbert Burns thing, but... Here, we'll pull it up now. We got some time. Pull it up. Here we go. So, I mean, TKO, TKO, first round. So, let's start with how the rounds worked for Chimaev in terms of his professional MMA career. You look at pro fights. Second round finish, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish, second round finish, second round finish, First round finish, first round finish, first round finish. He's never gone to a third round. Um, he's gotten finishes via, via submission and knockout. Submissions include the Bravo choke, which it was a Darce choke. That was against John Phillips in the UFC. Um, another Darce choke back in Brave against Mizwandil Long- Longwa. And then uh, KO, TKO, um, tap due to strikes. TKO, a rear naked choke in a second pro fight, and then obviously the rest were KOs. And then if you go to amateur career, he had a TKO in the first round via uh, just a TKO in the first round, a guillotine choke in the second round, and then a darsh choke in the first round. So he actually has three finishes via darsh choke, which is something I don't think a lot of people talk about. And I don't think he's going to go for submission against Burns. Because Burns is a highly decorated Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. A multiple-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. Beat um, Rafael Lovato Jr. in a uh, grappling match. Um, won on points, I, I believe. I don't think it was a submission. But he won on points. And that he is one of the best grapplers in the world. And a former Bellator middleweight champion, I believe. So, oh my god. Sorry about that. So, you know, Gilbert Burns knows how to grapple. He knows how to do it, but if you go to Gilbert Burns' record and you look at all of his fights, I mean, yeah, he's got some great wins against Wonderboy Thompson, against Woodley, against Damian Maya, against Gunnar Nelson. Um, you know, but you look at his wins and look at when he got a submission. His last submission win was against Mike Davis, which I believe that's Mike Beast Boy Davis from Tiger Muay Thai, for in April of 2019. So, you know, it's three years since he's got a submission victory. He's gotten a lot of decisions. He's got some knockouts. He's got hands, you know, but it's been three years and he hasn't gotten a submission in one, two, three, four, five, six fights. So it's been six fights in the UFC, six fights in his career in the UFC, and he hasn't gotten a submission. So I know people are going to say, well, Burns is the better Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. Burns a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Burns is going to be able to, you know, neutralize him on the ground. I think it's going to be interesting to watch the, scrambles watch the you know takedowns and watch the 
grappling exchanges, you know, maybe transitioning from leg locks, working from X guard, working from the Ashigurami game, trying to tie up the legs, you know, spinning to take the back, you know, fighting off to try to counter those spins with takedown reversals, you know, hipping, shrimping out, working the wizards, trying to get back up to the feet. I do think that's a possibility. But honestly and truly, if I'm going to break down this fight, I think on the feet, Burns has power. He definitely has power. Um, he does have the power to hurt Chemayev. We haven't seen Chemayev tested. We haven't seen Chemayev worked hard. We haven't seen him, you know, push to the brink. But honestly, truly, if I'm speaking from a 100% honest standpoint, I don't think that Chemayev is going to get pushed much in this fight. I think that this is a difficult matchup, but a favorable matchup for Chemayev. Burns is a former lightweight. A lot of people forget that. Burns has gotten knocked out at lightweight. He got knocked out by Dan Hooker at UFC 226. He has been finished at 155 pounds. He's now a 170-er. He's built more for that division. You know, shorter, stockier, a little bit bigger. He's got a lot of power. He wings his shots. He has a great overhand, a great left hook, good kicks. He's got power, man. If he lands on the chin of Chemayev, yeah, it could be a wrap, 100%. But I think Chemayev is faster. I think that Chemayev is going to be able to neutralize the Brazilian jiu-jitsu of Gilbert Burns with the top pressure, with the Dagestani handcuff, with the control from the half guard, with the control from the backside control, from the referee's position, constantly, you know, pushing him down, controlling the wrist, breaking his posture, controlling the wrist, breaking his base, landing some ground and bound, pushing him down, you know, trying to get um, back control, sink his hooks in. I don't think that Chemayev is going to get a submission. I don't see that. I don't think that that could happen unless he hurts him bad and then it goes for ground and pound and then works a submission. I could see it, but I don't think he's going to get a submission. I do think that the, the wrestling, the, um, you know, you forget that Shemayev is a multiple times Swedish national wrestling champion. It's not talked about much, but it's true. And the wrestling is going to be able to neutralize the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. A lot of the times when it's jiu-jitsu versus wrestling, if it's a high level wrestler who has great top control, great hip pressure, good control of your limbs, good wrist control, good ability to break your posture. They beat the jiu-jitsu guy nine out, of, nine out of 10 times, as long as they don't get caught in a submission. I think that Chemayev has a massive strength advantage and a massive size advantage as well. Chemayev is a big welterweight. He fought at 185 pounds. Yeah, only one time in the UFC knocked out Gerald Mearshart with one punch. He trains with Alexander Gustafson, who's a light heavyweight. Goes toe-to-toe with him. He dropped him in sparring with a body kick one time. There's footage out about that. He trained with Darren Till, who's a big middleweight, in my opinion. He's a big dude. And, you know, even Darren Till said he is so strong. He's insanely strong for his size. And he can just toss him around. He fought Jack Hermanson in a grappling match. Yes, it was close. Yes, it was competitive. But Shemayev kind of tossed him around as well. He threw him around. And that's grappling only. This is striking. This is MMA. Everything's mixed together. I think that Shemayev has a significant speed advantage. I think that his uh, punches, we don't really know about the punches, but from what I've seen, I believe he has the more technical striking. I think his punches are a little bit straighter, a little bit less wind up, a little bit better setting up with the feints. I think Burns kind of winds up a little bit. He loves to switch from orthodox to southpaw with the check right hook. He'll go overhand right, switch to southpaw with the right hook. Um, He likes to jab and then throw the left hook like an overhand as he changes and lowers his level. That's what he caught Damian Maya with over his jab. Boom, came over the top with the hook and uh, caught Damian Maya on the chin. But yeah, he beat Woodley. Woodley was at the tail end of his career for Burns. He beat, you know, Damian Maya. 
Maya was at the tail end of his career. He beat Wonderboy. That's probably his best win is the win against Wonderboy, and Wonderboy was at the tail end of his career. Yes, Burns is great. Yes, Burns is one of the best welterweights in the world, but honestly, and speaking without any judgment, I think Chimaev's better. I think Chimaev's wrestling is going to stifle the jiu-jitsu. I think Chimaev's striking is going to be um, a little bit too much for Burns to handle. I don't think Burns has the best chin. I think that Chimaev has a little bit better setups, and I think he can land on the chin of Burns and knock him out. So when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the prediction, I'm going with Hamzat Shemaev all day. I know a lot of people are saying this is the biggest test. We don't really know. Yeah, we're not going to – we don't have a lot of answers to a lot of the questions that we have in terms of Hamzat Shemaev, but I think we're going to get all those questions answered, and I think Shemaev is going to pass those tests with flying colors. So my pick for the people's main event of UFC 273 – is Hamzat, the number 11-ranked Hamzat Boris Chemaev to defeat the number 2-ranked Gilbert Dorino Burns via a first-round TKO. I think he gets him out of there in the first round. All right, and now we move to the co-main event of the evening for the undisputed UFC Bantamweight Championship of the world. You have the controversial... Um, reigning, defending, undisputed UFC bantamweight champion in Aljamain, the Funkmaster Sterling, coming into this fight with a record of 20 victories and three defeats, going up against the interim champion, coming off of a five-round decision victory over Corey the Sandman Sandhagen in Pelter No Mercy Jan, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 16 victories and two defeats. Oh, man, have we all been waiting for this fight. It's been over a year since their first fight. Aljamain obviously had a neck injury. He was hurt, couldn't fight because he was getting his neck fixed. He said that the neck issues were causing him strength issues, issues with his hands and his grip, and, you know, it affected his performance heavily at UFC 259. Now, I do believe that that is true. I do believe that his performance was affected. If the neck injury was that bad, that he had surgery on it, he fixed it. If the strength was that compromised, I do believe him because, you know, your neck, it, it causes, it can cause a lot of issues, especially in sports, especially in combat sports. It can cause a lot of problems with strength, a lot of problems with the grip, a lot of problems with your ability to move your head. It can cause a lot of issues that can get you caught in mixed martial arts. I do believe that. I 100% believe that. But I also 100% believe that Peter Jan is far and away the better fighter. Now, the better fighter doesn't always win, you know. And, you know, at UFC 259, I picked Peter Jan. If you go back and listen to my UFC 259 prediction show with uh, the striking coach out of, hard, out, of, uh, out of Hard Knocks Muay Thai in Boston, head, head striking coach of the New England Cartel in Rob Font and Kelvin Cater, Jake Manini, he picked Sterling. I picked Jan. Obviously, he was right, but, you know, should have been wrong. Obviously, it was a DQ loss in the fourth round for the champion at the time, who is now the interim champion in Peter Jan. Um, he lost the first round, in my opinion. Well, he didn't even lose the first round. It was just a close first round. Um, Eljamain was putting the pressure on him. He was kind of very wild, you know, front kicks to the body, jabs, crosses, um, you know, Teep kicks, one, two, teep kick, one, two, three, two, trying to shoot a takedown. You know, he he went for 17 takedowns in the fight. He got one takedown. And the takedown he got, Jan was able to get up pretty easily. Every other takedown attempt he shot, he wasn't really able to get. Eljamain was fighting a little bit 
over eager. He was fighting a little bit reckless. He was kind of throwing himself all over the place, lost balance multiple times, and actually got, I believe Jan got seven out of seven takedowns in that fight at UFC 259. First round, like I said, was close. Um, Jan did drop Eljamain with a left hook into a right hand, kind of left hook to catch the jab, and then boom, come with the right hand, drop an Eljamain. But I believe Eljamain did good work in the first round, and I do think it was close. After that, um, it was a Peter Jan show for the rest of the fight. And he got DQ'd, um, knee to a grounded opponent. Eljamain said it was terribly affecting him, which the knee was flush. It was heavy. Um, I, at the time of watching the fight, I said a lot of curse words. I was really pissed off because um, I had one of my friends or you know my uncles running a parlay. And if Jan would have won, he would have won over 10K. And that fight cost the parlay. So I was pretty pissed um, just because I wanted, you know, success for people that I give my picks to. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. I believe it was Cruz, Rakic, and Jan. And uh, obviously, you know, Jan was the last leg of the parlay. And it all came crashing down, brother. It all came crashing down in the words of uh, Hulk Hogan. When it comes crashing down and it hurts inside, you know, Peter Jan or Aljamain Sterling killed the vibe. So, you know, that's just how it goes. But. In all honesty, um, I do think that there are areas where Eljamain is going to have some success. If he can keep up that first-round pace for five rounds in this rematch against Peter Jan, he can win. I do believe there is a possibility for him to win. I do believe that. Um, if you look at the odds really quick, I want to pull that up because they do have the odds on UFC.com. So even though Eljamain is technically the champion... He is a plus 360 underdog to the minus 490 favorite in the interim champion, Piotr No Mercy Jan. Um, let me just cover the odds for Chimaev versus Burns. Uh, Chimaev is a minus 525 favorite, which is crazy, absolutely insane um, to the plus 385 underdog in Burns. But let's go back to the co-main event. So, you know, like I said, there are areas where I believe El Jermaine can win. He has to get the fight to the ground. 100%, he's got to get the back. He's got to get take the back, work the neck, and look for a rear naked choke. That's the only way that Aljamain wins this fight. Because he's not going to be able to keep up that first round pace. He should, he you know, showcased at UFC 259. He's not going to be able to keep that up for 25 minutes. Even if he's in the best shape of his career against a guy who's as cerebral, who's as tactical, who's as technical as a Peter Yan, you're not going to be able to keep up that pace. You're just not, and it's it's not going to happen. But before we get into predictions and you know technical breakdowns on the fight, let's get into the stats. So they're equal in height at 5'7 for both the champion and interim champion. Um, reach, 71-inch reach for Aljamain Sterling to a 67-inch reach for Peter Jan. So that is interesting. A 4-inch reach advantage for Sterling. So he's going to look to throw those long-range attacks, the teep to the body, the jabs, the crosses, you know, one, two, teep to the body. One, two, inside low kick, outside low kick. One, two, hook. You know, he's going to look to use those jabs and crosses, the ones and twos in the front, the long front kicks to keep Jan at range, to keep him at distance, to stop him from being able to come in. That's where that reach is going to come into factor. Um, leg reach, 39-inch leg reach for Sterling to 38-inch leg reach for Jan. I don't really think that one-inch leg reach advantage is going to make much of a difference. When you look at win percentages and break that down, win percentages by way of knockout, 11% of wins coming by way of KO, 
For Sterling, 42% by submission and 47% by decision. For Peter Jan, it's 47 wins coming by way of knockout or TKO, 7% of wins coming by way of submission, and 47% of wins coming by way of decision. Equal amount of wins by decision for both guys. Jan, more of a knockout artist. Sterling, more of a submission specialist. Um, looking at average fight time, Sterling actually has the less, you know, has less fight time. Um, 12 minutes and 24 seconds for the champion in Sterling to 15 minutes and 14 seconds for the interim champion, Piotr Jan. When you look at knockdowns per 15-minute fight, zero for Sterling to 1.09 for Jan. So Jan is obviously going to be um, more adept in the striking, but mainly in the boxing. He is a Russian master of sport in boxing, which is a very, very high accolade to have, especially in mixed martial arts. You don't see that much. Um, when you break down the striking, significant strikes landed per minute, 4.84 for Aljamain Sterling to 5.98 for Piotr Jan. So not only is Jan a dangerous striker, not only is he a well-rounded mixed martial artist, but he is an active striker. Almost six strikes landed per minute compared to almost five for Sterling. So not a huge advantage, but with a guy who fights more off volume, pace, and pressure, um, that's impressive going into this rematch. So um, significant strike percentage landed, 49% of significant strikes landed for Eljamain Sterling to 52% of significant strikes landed for Piotr Jan. Um, close, but you know when it comes to the cleaner, more technical, more tactical striker, I mean, you don't really have to go under a microscope to know that that's going to be no mercy Piotr Jan all day. Um, strikes absorbed per minute, 2.2 for Eljamain Sterling to 4.14 for Piotr Jan. So Jan is there to be hit more often with the volume of Eljamain Sterling. That can be a problem in the early rounds, but you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll get to that part of the breakdown soon, soon. Let's just continue with the stats. So defense or, uh, you know, defense overall, 63% striking defense for Sterling to 62% for Jan. Um, I know those stats are close, but on the feet, um, Jan is going to be better both defensively and offensively, in my opinion. I mean, you can even see that from the first fight. When you look at the grappling, where Sterling would most likely take over if he were to win this fight, 1.77 takedowns per 15 minutes for Sterling to 1.75 for Jan. So close, actually neck and neck, but Sterling is going to be the one shooting the takedowns, looking to tie up in the body lock, looking to tie up in the over-under, looking to shoot those takedowns up against the fence, looking to shuck. Jan forward or shuck Jan, pull Jan forward and shuck him off to the side up against the cage to try to take the back and get his hooks in and then work for the rear naked choke like he did against Corey Sandhagen. Um, I expect him to go for submission attempts and takedowns and back control early and often in this fight because that is his most likely path to victory. Um, when you look at the takedown accuracy, 24% takedown accuracy rate for Eljamain Sterling to 61% takedown accuracy rate for Piotr Jan. So although, you know, Sterling is the better grappler, the better submission artist, he's not the most accurate with his takedowns. He's a little bit sloppy, a little bit wild, a little bit reckless on the feet, and it makes it harder for him to set up his takedowns. Usually when he gets one, it's a problem, unless your name's Peter Jan, but, you know, not that ac accurate with the takedown attempts. Takedown defense, 41% defense rate for Sterling to an 89% takedown defense rate for the interim champion in Piotr Jan. So, you know, you saw in the first fight, one out of 17 takedowns for Sterling compared to, I believe, seven out of seven for Piotr Jan. I could be wrong on that number. It was seven or eight, six, seven or eight, somewhere around there. I think it was seven, though. So, you know, you can correct me in the comments or, you know, in a message if you want to. 
But 89% takedown defense rate for Jan compared to 41% takedown defense rate for Sterling. Um, submission average per 15-minute fight, 0.89 for the champion in Sterling to 0.22 for the interim champion in Piotr Jan. Okay, so we broke, we broke down the stats. We broke down what happened in the first fight. I mean, Jan is just a better fighter here. Um, honestly speaking, I give Eljamain Sterling two rounds to win this fight. He has to get Eljamain or get Piotr Jan down, get his back, and lock up the rear naked choke early. He's got 10 minutes in this fight to do it. If he does not do it in the first round and a half, two rounds, Piotr Jan dominates him. And he does it easily, and he does it in dominant fashion. I mean, the first fight was a dominant performance from Piotr Jan to begin with. Obviously, the DQ happened. Eljamain won the fight on a technicality and a DQ, which isn't his fault. So you can't really blame him, even though it was kind of an Oscar-worthy performance, if you ask me. But I'm not the one who got hit with the knee, and the only one who knows how they were affected was Eljamain, who took the knee. So, you know, I don't want to sit here and talk bad on him, but... Overall better fighter, Piotr Jan, um, and I think it's pretty clear. I think it's about as clear as day that Piotr Jan is better on the feet, better in the clinch, um, and even better with the takedowns according to the first fight, but I don't think it's going to be as easy for Jan to get those takedowns in the first fight, and I don't really expect him to use a lot of takedowns unless he tries to tie up Eljamain in the clinch in the over-under position and um, the, sing the tie plum and then tries to work elbows and high kicks off the break like he did against Uriah Faber at UFC 245. That's something I could see from Piotr Jan is when they're in the clinch, working the uppercut from in close, working the elbows off the break, working the high kicks off the break, you know, pulling him into shots 3-2. I could see him working that in the clinch, and I think maybe he tries to dirty box, but only if he gets Eljamain tired and sloppy, kind of like he fought in the first fight after that first round. But Eljamain is so wild, so reckless. You know, he's going to have to work on volume in this fight, using the volume strikes, two, three, four punch combinations with a kick and then shooting a takedown. One, two, three, four, five, six strike combinations, shooting a takedown, faking the takedown, come up with the six, three, two, one, one, two, front kick to the body. Um, I do think that leg kicks are going to be an advantage for Eljamain Sterling. Um, leg kicks and front kicks up the middle. Um, uh, Piotr Jan got caught with a lot of inside and outside low kicks against uh, Corey Sandhagen. I do believe Sandhagen is obviously the better striker than Eljamain, even though Sterling won that fight via first-round submission. So you can't say he's the better fighter, but better striker, I definitely believe that to be true. So um, attacking the inside and outside legs, or inside and outside of the leg, lead leg, and then throwing the teep kick and push kicks up the middle to sap the body of Piotr Jan would be the best weapons for Sterling on the feet. So long-range attacks, one-twos, front kicks up the middle, and uh, inside and outside low kicks. For Jan, um, boxing is obviously going to be his bread and butter. The one-two, the three-two, uh, fake and faint, boom, two-three. Fake and faint, one-two-three, rear uppercut. Fake and faint, one-six, you know, two-three, two-three, body, one-two-three, boom, six up the middle. Fake and faint, boom, six in the clinch. Um, the uppercuts, uh, the combinations, just, you know, adding kicks. I think kicks to the body are good for Jan against Sterling. Um, you know, Jan likes to switch his stances a lot in fights. He goes one, two, switch or southpaw, come over the top with the overhand. Um, I think we're going to see him use that a lot, but he might set it up behind a feint before he steps in with the jab. So maybe he'll feint, throw a jab, feint, one, two, step off, land the overhand left. The one thing is that Jan used to throw, a lot of people when they throw that switching stance combination, they're very wide in their base and it's very telegraphed. When Jan switches his stances, it's very quick. It's just a quick, uh, 
lateral movement and he switches from orthodox to southpaw switches from southpaw to orthodox and vice versa it's very quick it's very subtle you can't really see it there's a lot of subtlety in the stance switches and the footwork of a piotr jan and it's not very wide and and you know telegraphed if it's wide and telegraphed Eljamain can duck underneath close the distance look for a body lock look to shoot a double look to shoot a head on the inside or head on the outside single and then work his trying to take the back and get the back control and get the submission but um, overall, I think we're going to get a dominant and violent and emphatic performance from Piotr Jan here. Um, he's a heavy favorite. I think it's every right justified that he can be a favorite. If you want to take the shot at the dog, um, just bet him straight up because to win by submission is probably um, his, you know, not as high of an underdog bet as it would be if you just bet Eljamain straight up to win. So if you want to take a shot at the dog, go ahead. You know, it's possible, but I just think that, you know, it's possible if he locks up a submission, but I think Jan outclasses Sterling for as long as the fight lasts. I think we're going to get a more dominant performance from Jan than the first fight. I think he's coming in here to make a statement. I think he's going to be quick, clean, crisp, use a lot of fakes and feints to draw out the wide looping and the, you know, lazy shots of Sterling get countered, um, hurt on the feet multiple times. And I think we get a TKO victory. You know what? I'm going to go with a, a flush knockout. I don't think it's a TKO. I think we get a knockout victory for the interim champion in Peter Jan to become the quote unquote new bantamweight champion of the world. I'm going to go with a, I'm going to go with a second round knockout victory for Piotr Jan. I think he could technically catch Eljamain shooting a takedown with a high kick or a knee like Marlon Moraes did. I do think that's a possibility, but I think the boxing is going to be what takes Jan to, um, you know, success in this fight. He's definitely, in my opinion, the best boxer in the UFC. Um, I think he sets up his stuff better than anybody. I think he thinks two, three, four steps ahead. And I think watching that fight against Corey Sandhagen at UFC 267 and the technical striking chess match that they put on probably one of the best striking showcases in UFC history. One of the best fights in UFC history too. If you haven't watched Jan versus Sandhagen from 267, but um, I'm going to go with a second round knockout for Piotr Jan. Like I said, I think the boxing is going to be evident here. I think he's going to use kicks behind the punches, but I think that Eljamain might have a successful first round and then Jan's going to take a little bit to download. He likes to take the first couple rounds off, download the data, and then pick it up as the fight goes on. But I think he's going to be able to pick up on Eljamain pretty quickly and pretty often in this fight. So I'm going to go with a second round knockout victory for Piotr Jan. I think he uh, catches Eljamain with a 1-2. He tries to shoot a takedown. Boom, catches him with the uppercut, drops him, and knocks him out. So a second round knockout victory for Piotr Jan to become the new undisputed UFC bantamweight champion and defeat Eljamain Funkmaster Sterling in emphatic fashion. <clears throat> All right, and now we move to the main event of the evening for the UFC Featherweight Championship of the World. You have the reigning defending UFC Featherweight Champion holding a professional record of 23 victories with only one defeat in professional mixed martial arts and Alexander the Great Volkanovsky going up against the number four ranked former title challenger, longtime mixed martial arts veteran in the Korean zombie, Shan Sung Jung, more than likely just known as the Korean zombie at this point, who comes into this fight with a record of 17 victories and six defeats. Um, 
I am excited for this fight. Um, I'm not super pumped up for this fight. Like I said, I would say um, the fight I'm most interested in, like from a technical standpoint, is Burns versus Chimaev. The fight I'm most excited for in terms of just excitement level is Jan versus Sterling. And then followed by Volkanovsky versus the Korean Zombie, which doesn't go to say that I don't think that, like, I don't think this fight is going to be a walk in the park for Volkanovsky, which I hear a lot of people saying. Um, if I had to pick one upset to occur on this card overall between Burns versus Chemayev, Jan and Sterling, and the Zombie versus Volkanovsky, I would say that the one with the best chance of happening is Zombie over Volkanovsky. And that doesn't mean that I think it's going to happen. That doesn't mean that I think it's a big chance that it's going to happen. But the one I would lean the most towards, if I had to, you know, put money down on one upset, I would probably take um, Zombie over Volkanovsky. But before we get into the breakdown, let's go over the stats. I mean, you know, okay, before that, a lot of people say, why is the Korean Zombie getting a title shot? He shouldn't have got the title shot, blah, blah, blah. This shouldn't have happened, you know, this and that. And it was supposed to happen at um, UFC 2, let's see, this is 273. I believe it was supposed to happen at UFC 271. And then it got pushed back. So they pushed it back to this card. Um, it was either 271, I believe it was 271. It might have been 270, but it was supposed to happen. Then it got pushed back. So now it's getting here. But there's really no other contenders in that division right now who are going to fight for a title. Yes, you could save uh, Max Holloway, give him a third fight. Potentially. Yeah, I think that's going to happen at some point. It might be next. You know, people could say Kelvin Cater. I'd love to see Cater get the title shot, but he needs one more win. I think Cater versus Arnold Allen. If he beats Arnold Allen, then maybe give him a title shot. Maybe give him the uh, Brian Ortega. Ortega versus Cater is a great fight. Allen versus Cater is a great fight. You've got Zabit coming back at some point. We don't know when. You know, there's so many possibilities, but title contenders, it's really only between the Zombie and Max Holloway, and this is a fresh matchup, so of course they're going to go in this direction. So Korean Zombie versus Volkanovski, it makes sense to me. Korean Zombie's coming off of a win over Dan Ige. Ige just is coming off a win over Josh Emmett, you know, at... Or, I'm sorry, did he beat Josh Emmett or he lost to him? I think he lost. Yeah, he lost to Josh Emmett, but a close competitive fight, um, you know. But it is what it is. You know, this fight makes sense. Even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it does make sense. And, you know, they could have made way worse fights for this featherweight title. So, let's go into the stats. So, we already broke down the records. Um, both men coming off of a win. When you look at the height, 5'6 uh, for the champion in Volkanovski to 5'7 for Chan Sung Jung, or the Korean Zombie. You look at the reach, it's 71.5-inch reach for Volkanovski, the champion, to 72-inch reach for uh, the Korean Zombie. So, uh, half-inch reach advantage for the Korean Zombie, and a one-inch height advantage so far as we break down the stats. Leg reach, 2.5-inch leg reach advantage for the Zombie, 38.5-inch leg reach to 36-inch leg reach for Alexander the Great. When you look at the win percentages, if we break those down, 48% of the wins coming by way of knockout for the champion of Volkanovski, 13% by submission, and 39% by decision. Pretty even all across the board. Uh, for the Korean Zombie, 35% of his wins coming by way of knockout, 47% by submission, 18% via decision. Uh, more of a submission artist than anything. Volkanovski, more of a knockout artist. So again, kind of like Burns and Chemayev, more of submission base on one side, 
more of a, you know, striking knockout finish base on the side of the champion. When you look at the average fight time, 16 minutes and eight seconds for the champion in Volkanovski to 12 minutes and 12 seconds for the number four ranked Korean zombie. So higher on the side of Volkanovski, obviously champion five rounds, a lot of five round fights, you know, it, it makes sense. When you look at knockdown average per 15-minute fight, this is where the Korean Zombie actually has an advantage. 0.37 knockdowns per 15-minute fight for Volkanovski to 0.51 for the Korean Zombie. When you look at significant strikes and break those down, 6.42 significant strikes landed per minute for the champion in Volkanovski. He's very active. He's patient, but he's also active at the same time. He's patient with his fakes and feints and good at setting you up, but when he lets it go, he can let him go. Um, 4.07 strikes landed per minute for the Korean zombie. So a almost two and a half to one strike advantage for Korean or for the champion in Volkanovski. So a two and a half strike advantage in strikes landed per minute. Significant strike uh, percentage. Uh, 56% of significant strikes landed for the champion in Volkanovski to 43% of significant strikes landed for the challenger in the Korean zombie. When you look at strikes absorbed per minute, you have 3.34 for the champion of Volkanovski to 3.87 for the Korean zombie. So the zombie takes just slightly more, but they're pretty neck and neck in the amount of strikes they absorb per minute. Um, defense on the side of the champion here, 60% striking defense for Volkanovski to 55% striking defense for uh, the Korean zombie. When you look at the grappling, uh, 1.77 takedowns per 15-minute fight for the champion to 0.82 for the challenger. So a big advantage or at least a significant advantage in takedowns per a 15 minute fight. This fight's obviously five rounds, 25 minutes. But um, if we get takedowns, I think that uh, it would probably go takedowns would be on the side of Volkanovski to work his ground and pound, but jujitsu and activity off the ground and off of his back or off the top position and danger in terms of submission game would more go towards Chan Sung Jung. When you look at the, sorry guys, give me one second. When you look at takedown accuracy, 34% takedown accuracy rate for the champion in Volkanovski to 47% for the challenger. So that takedown accuracy does side with the challenger in that aspect. Takedown defense, defense actually sides with the challenger as well. 70% takedown defense for the champion in Volkanovski, 77% takedown defense for the Korean zombie submission average per 15 minute fight. This is where it's going to obviously side with the Korean zombie 0.72 for zombie compared to 0.28 submission average for uh, the champion in Volkanovski. So I would say if anybody's going to look for a submission, it is going to be the challenger in Chan Sung Jung. I do believe that to be true. Um, is it going to be easy to get? No. Do I think he's going to get it? We'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's breaking down the stats. So common opponents. Sorry, guys, I got cut off there for a second. But common opponents for both of these men would obviously be Brian Ortega. And if you look at the Ortega fight with Volkanovski, yes, Volkanovski almost got submitted. He got caught in a really, really tight um, mounted arm in guillotine. Don't know how he got out of it, but he found his way to squirm out of it and got out. Then... Later on in that same round, he got caught in a triangle and almost got submitted, but was able to work his way out. Aside from that, on the feet, Volkanovski dominated. Um, 
the striking, he was like five steps ahead of Ortega. I'm not saying Ortega didn't do well. He did land some jabs in the right hand. Um, Volkanovsky, since he's shorter, sometimes he'll try to back away and keep his rear hand in front of the left side of his chin and then kind of try to frame off with the lead hand and back up in a straight line. He uses that defense a lot. That can sometimes, I think there is a possibility that could put him in some danger against the Korean zombie, but that is something we'll obviously talk about in a minute. Um, but aside from that, like I said, Volkanovsky was five, six, seven, eight steps ahead. The fakes and feints, his faking and fainting on the feet and setting up strikes, it's on another level. Um, he's probably one of the best fighters at using fakes and feints to set up his shots. I would say Volkanovsky and Peter Jan are the best at setting up fakes and feints, using fakes and feints to set up their striking, to set up um, openings and set traps for the opponent. They are two of the best trap setters on the feet in terms of the striking game in all of mixed martial arts. And coincidentally, in my opinion, they're two of the most well-rounded mixed martial artists on the planet. They might even be the two most well-rounded mixed martial artists on in the world today. In my opinion, that's how highly regarded I, I think of both of these men. But, uh, you know, when you look at the Volkanov or the Korean zombie and Ortega fight, I mean, it was pretty dominant in terms of Ortega. I mean, I think it was, it was closer than Ortega and Volkanovski, even though there was closer to, uh, attempts to finishing the fight, I think the overall fight was closer for Ortega and the Korean zombie. But, you know, zombie did get caught with that spinning elbow. He got caught with some kicks, some one twos striking on the feet. You know, that was Ortega 2.0 or bald Ortega, like the, the reformation of Brian Ortega. A lot of people said it was like a monk energy and he was just, you know, trans transforming into the next um, evolution of his fighting character, you know, that that's what a lot of people believed. It was probably the best performance in Brian Ortega's career, but I mean, overall, and in, in speaking, I do believe that the Korean zombie poses some threats on the feet. Um, the one thing is he's very good at, at generating power from a close range. If you look at the knockouts over Frankie Edgar and the knockout over, I think the Frankie Edgar one is probably the best, um, explanation was that he, is very good at countering you, moving backwards. The Korean zombie has a very lazy, um, relaxed type of style. He keeps his lead hand real low, um, rear hand up at the chin, either in the front of his chin or on the rear side of his face to protect in a high guard. He kind of tries to parry with that and either come over the top with an overhand, parry, come back with a left hook, parry, one, two, jab, 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 low kick, jab, low kick. It's not a lot of combinations from the Korean zombie, but his ability to counter is second to none. But when you're going up against a guy who's so good with those fakes and feints, who's so good at setting traps, using his footwork, boxing you in, switching his stances to trap you and then walk you into shots as you're circling away, those fakes and feints make that counter-striking style extremely difficult for the Korean zombie to employ. When you're faking and fainting, you're going to counter on the wrong feint. You might counter a feint, and then that counter leads you to get countered. So Volkanovski might fake. Korean zombie might counter, but then Volkanovski can counter the counter, and that can obviously leave the Korean zombie to get hurt, get dropped, and get finished. Korean zombie has been hurt in his career. Um, he has been dropped. I don't believe he's gotten finished by a KO. Um, yes, actually, yes, he has. I'm sorry. Yair Rodriguez finished him with that spinning back elbow at um, the UFC 25th anniversary fight night. 
Um, I believe that's what the fight was was known as or the fight night was branded as. But a close fight in the fifth round, probably the Korean zombie would have won the decision. But he got caught with that spinning back elbow, or I'm sorry, an upward elbow, not a spinning back elbow at the last second as a Korean zombie rushed forward and he got hurt. Korean zombie doesn't have the same wild style that we came to know and love. He's kind of learned to become more composed, more more uh, cerebral in his approach, and he fights more as a counter striker and less as, you know, moving forward, rushing into shots and eventually or potentially getting countered, hurt, dropped, knocked out, and leaving himself for a lot of openings. He's become, since he came back from his military service when he returned against Dennis Bermudez, and from then on, he's become a little bit more cerebral. He's become a little bit more patient and calm, and he's more of a counter striker than to open up and come forward. You saw it really well against uh, Hanato Moicano, where he just kind of stayed in that long stance, chopped with the low kick. He moved, boom, throw that long left hook out, pretty lazy, doesn't throw a lot of power into it, boom, threw it again, and then he set that up to go to dip and then come over the top with the overhand right over the jab of um, Moicano. So it was a left hook, pivot off, fake the left hook, and then boom, come over the top when he throws that jab, slip, slip, outside slip, boom, come over the top, chopped him with that right hand, went to follow up with a left hook. I believe the left hook caught him on the way down. He jumped on him, took the back, got the hooks in, flattened him out, and got the finish. If Korean Zombie hurts you, he did the same thing in the, uh, the Frankie Edgar finish when he caught him with that uppercut, caught him with the left hook, caught him with the right hand, stepping in left hook, uppercut, dropped him, um, he spins to take the back. He flattens you out, and he works the ground and pound finish, and then or the ground and pound trying to flatten you out from your back. Boom, 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 back mount, flatten you out, trying to get the takedown or trying to get the knockout. And then uh, Frankie Edgar was able to get up, but then he got caught again on the feet, just rushing in. Boom, catch him with the right hook. Boom, catch him with the left hook. One, two, left hook, rear uppercut. Korean zombie striking is sharp, and the thing that makes him dangerous against Volkanovski is that he can counter you. From very close ranges, his punches, when he's at range, are long. The long left hook to direct you into the overhand right or the straight right. The long jab, the long left hook, jab, left hook, right low kick, inside and outside, attacking with the low kicks. He has a good shot selection. But when he comes to when it comes to countering, it's short, short right hook, short left hook, right uppercut, short overhand right, short overhand left. They're short, compact, and crisp, which makes it harder for the opponent to see. And since Volkanovski is going to be the shorter fighter, when you look at the height for both men, we'll go back to the stats. Um, it's close. It's only a one-inch height advantage for the Korean Zombie and a half-inch reach advantage. So it's close. It's not a huge height advantage, but he is the taller, longer fighter, in my opinion. Um, I think Volkanovski fights longer because he's better um, with his fight IQ, and he knows how to use those fakes and feints and his footwork to set those traps. So even though he's a short guy, he makes him, it seem like he's taller and longer because of the way he's able to approach the range and the distance in fighting. He's probably one of the best at maintaining the range and distance in you know mixed martial arts like we already talked about. But those short, quick combinations can catch Volkanovski. The one thing I don't like from Volkanovski is the thing I already talked about, where he'll you know measure with the lead hand, but he'll cover up with the, the rear hand. He'll bring it to the lead side, the left side of his face, or right side if he's southpaw. He would bring the left hand to the right side of the chin and block and then cover with a long guard. That long guard and that ability to cover, if Chan Sung Jung fakes the jab and comes around with that long left hook, I think that left hook can be there against Volkanovski. So watch for Jung to kind of draw him in, 
fake the left hook, and then boom, pop it with a strong left hook as Volkanovski tries to step in on the jab. Look for him to fake, boom, come in with the left hook. Look for him to fake, fake, fake the left hook, boom, left hook, and then direct him into the overhand right. If he lands that left hook, the next thing coming is that overhand right. Zombie has a clean, quick, and sharp overhand right. You saw it against... Um, Frankie Edgar, you saw it at the same way in that knockout against Hanato Moicano. Left hook, left hook, boom, slip the jab, come over the top with the overhand right. Um, the thing about the zombie is he draws you into this false sense of security, gets you to think that you're okay, and then bop, pops you with a counter. Boom, 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 one, two, three, four punch combination. He draws you in with this lazy hands down, low kick, jab, one, two, cross, Boom, come over the top of the counter. He draws you in, and then when you come in and step into range, he counters you and tries to take you out. Um, I think the counters are going to be a problem for Volkanovski, or I think they can be a problem, I should say. But I think that, like I said earlier, the fakes and feints, the ability to set everything up behind those fakes, switch his stances, switch back, direct you into where he wants you to go, um, throw in that outside low kick into a stepping in overhand left hook or overhand left right low kick, shuffle step in, pendulum step in, off that low kick, come over the top of the overhand left, one, two, step into southpaw, direct you in, straight left, step back to orthodox, left hook, right hand, step back into southpaw, right hook, left kick to the body, one, two, right kick to the body, switch southpaw, jump in off a darting left hand, right hook, tie you up in the clinch. The fakes and feints in the setups are 10 steps ahead for Volkanovski, and that's what makes him a champion. That's what makes him... Um, have that championship mindset. Um, and I think that he's 23 and one for a reason. The guy's a monster. Um, he can, he can push a pace for five rounds. I think the only chance that the zombie has is to win this fight via finish in the first two rounds. When it goes to the third, fourth, and fifth, Volkanovsky has that championship pace, that championship mental, that championship medal, and he can push a pace and grind you and, and push you out. You know, he can push a pace and drown guys. And I think the zombie could be there for the picking, be there to get countered the longer the fight goes, and be there to get taken out the longer the fight goes. First two rounds, that's where I see if it's a finish, if it's an upset, that's where I see the Korean zombie getting the upset. Is catching Volkanovski on a counter early on, hurting him, jumping on him, and either setting up a submission off Volkanovski getting hurt. Because if it's just strict jujitsu, Ortega is a way better jujitsu artist, and he tried so many times to set it up with submission that he wasn't able to get it. So if he hurts Volkanovski, drops him, and rocks him, then he can try to set up the Darsh choke. Then he can try to set up a rear naked choke or flatten him out and take the back like he does when he hurt Moicano, like he did when he hurt Frankie Edgar. He's going to look to spin to take the back, flatten you out, and get the ground and pound TKO or set up a rear naked choke. That's what he's going to do. We've seen him do it in multiple fights before. Um, you know, Volkanovski, or I'm sorry, Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, does have a victory over um, Dustin Poirier, which is impressive, but it was when Poirier was at 45. He was able to drop him, hurt him, and lock up a Darsh choke. Um, Volkanovski did get caught in an Anaconda choke. He is caught in that submission, but he didn't tap. Uh, Brian Ortega caught him, but he got out. If he's able to get out of the submission attempts of a Brian Ortega, who in my opinion is a better Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist than Chan Sung Jung, probably the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist in the UFC. I think he's going to have no trouble getting out of submissions from Chan Sung Jung, but if he gets hurt off one of those sharp, short counters, stepping in, and then he gets hurt, then he shoots a lazy takedown, then he gets caught, that's where I could see him maybe getting a submission. But I don't really see Volkanovski tapping. Um, after the second round, Chan Sung Jung's chance of winning drastically diminishes. I think it goes down to about 10%. In the first two rounds, I'd give him about a 40% chance of winning, maybe 35%. Um, but I do think it's close, and if anybody is going to pull off an upset, um, 
even though it's not that likely, I think the highest chance of an upset would come in this main event with Chan Sung Jung potentially getting the featherweight title. But overall, I think the fakes and feints, the setups, the pace and pressure, the fakes and feints are really going to be what does in the Korean zombie. I think it's going to leave him open. I think he's going to bite on a lot of the feints. His chin's going to be open and Volkanovski's going to crack him on the feet with a lot of power shots. I think it's going to be a close first two rounds. Volkanovski's going to take over in the third, um, take over in the fourth, drown the Korean zombie with the pace, the pressure, freeze him up with the fakes and feints, start landing that right hand, start landing those left hooks, start landing those combinations, work in the body, body kicks, head kicks, inside and outside low kicks, and just kind of chopping them up. I see a similar finish to the fight um, against Chad Mendez that Volkanovski had. I believe that was at UFC 240. Was it at 245? Or was it? Yeah, I think it was 240. No, no, no. 245 he fought. Um, I'm sorry. 245 he fought Max Holloway. That's when he won the belt. So he had that finish at UFC 2... What was it? 235 maybe 235 uh, somewhere around there I could be wrong but I think it's similar to that I think he drowns him I think he pushes him back pushes the zombie back zombie doesn't have the best defense he gets caught with a lot of shots I think he's gonna push him back get him against the cage work the body shots work up top to the head drop the Korean zombie and get a fourth round TKO so my pick is and still Alexander the great Volkanovsky to defeat the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung via a fourth-round TKO, improve the 24-1 and in professional mixed martial arts, and move one step closer to becoming the greatest featherweight of all time. All right, that's it for my UFC 273 preview predictions and analysis. I hope you enjoyed. I know it's a long episode. I know we only broke down three fights, but I call this card a triple header for a reason, and um, I was really excited to break down all these fights for you. I hope I did you justice and gave you the best possible breakdown from a technical and tactical standpoint that any fan of mixed martial arts could want to hear. If you like what you're hearing, you can find the Touch Em Up podcast on any uh, podcast platform. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher. Anywhere you can get your audio podcast, you can get Double M and the Touch Em Up podcast. Please leave a review for the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, any podcast app that offers reviews, please leave a review to help us grow and get us to be one of the best mixed martial arts podcasts in the world. Um, I have a lot more breakdowns, technical fighter breakdowns and uh, prediction videos on my YouTube. Just search Touch Em Up Podcast, just like you found this podcast. And um, thank you for all the support. Thank you for everybody who tunes into this podcast. Thank you for everybody who supports the podcast on a weekly, monthly basis. Whatever you do, if you've tuned in and listened to an, ep an episode of this podcast, then I appreciate you. And thank you so much for the support. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody. All right.